Blog Talk Radio. Aloha! Welcome to BC Radio Live, a production of BC Magazine and part of the BC Radio Network on Blog Talk Radio. We are broadcasting live online, so stop by the chat room at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio to join in. I am Philip Wynn, Chief Geek at BC Magazine, and I'm here with Eric Olson, founder and publisher of BC Magazine. Welcome, Eric. Thanks, Philip. Man, you're just turning into slick radio guy announcer dude. <laughs> the dull no, tones come tripping off of your tongue as well, if I did manage pudding. to come up with some new opening music. Uh, you know, last week's was apparently too spooky. No, no, no. I like the spooky music. I, I don't know what I think about this one. This was, this was kind of like uh, what you'd hear at the small town traveling carnival trying to placate the children so they could be let off into slavery, something wow. like that. Wow, a little Pied Piper theme. Yeah, yeah. Now I have a challenge. I need to come up with uh, with pod-safe opening theme music every week to inspire new thoughts from you. Yeah, that was pretty good, I have to admit, wasn't it? I, I impressed <laughs> myself. Well, in the second half of our show today, we're going to talk with a legendary punk producer and friend of yours, Eric, Marty Fowle. Oh, yeah, I'm really excited about that. I met Marty when I was working on the Encyclopedia of Record Producers for Billboard Books three years out of my life. And I'm, we're, everyone involved, I think, is, is certainly very proud of the book, but I'm not sure it was worth three full years. But, hey, you know, you can't go backwards. And uh, as I say, you know, we're we're very proud of the book. There's about 500 producers covered in there. I think I ended up writing about a third of them and and uh, did a final edit on the rest. And it was just a monumental task that we had no idea what we were getting into. But uh, on the super plus side is the book itself and the way it came out. And, and perhaps even more so are the relationships that so many of us developed. And I did, uh, you know, just dozens and dozens of interviews with with these people who, you know, helped create my favorite music of all time. It really was amazing. I was I was very much the fan doing all these interviews, almost all of them on the phone. So I'm sitting here in my office getting to talk to all these great people. And one of them was Marty. And, man, I was a huge fan. I remember going to uh, the department store at, at the, uh, in the Menor Mall and picking up the first New York Dolls album. And, man, that cover... That was scandalous. You know, they were in drag, and they're sitting there primping, and the music was extremely raucous, and, and I just didn't know what to make of it. But I loved the music, and then I went and saw the band when they came to Cleveland, and, you know, I was young. I mean, this was 70, what, 2, 3, I think. Uh, and uh, I was, you know, 14, 15 years old. And, uh, you know, it was amazing. I was, I, was, I was overwhelmed by the strangeness and the audacity of it all. But... Uh, Marty was right there in the middle of it all, and he he managed the band, and uh, you know worked with them and tried to to try to uh, drag them uh, kicking and screaming into the big time, and through all kinds of problems, personnel problems, drug problems, alcohol problems, on and on and on, relationship issues, and uh, you know it was just a wild wild time, and he was trying to ride herd over these guys, so he really has some great stories and. Uh, we had such a great time talking. We really became friends, although we still, to this day, haven't met in person. Another, another one of those relationships, like like Philip and I, we'd known each other for a few years before we met, and um, so uh, we ended up starting our both of our first blogs together. We, there were actually three of us, and that was that was my very first site back in February of '02. We started Trey Producers because uh, technically I am a record producer, although. I, I wear the I, I wear it very lightly because all I've really done is is some electronic music of my own, but uh, Marty's certainly a real producer, and yep. as is Mike, Mike Crooker, another good friend of mine who's here in the Cleveland area, and he's he's helped produce all kinds of of local bands as well as his own music, and he and I work together as Elliptical, the electronic duo. So the two of them were real producers. I was sort of a faux producer, but. 
it was a fun name, and that's how we got started. And uh, in fact, that's Marty, that's actually how that's how I found out about you, Eric. Was uh, Trey Producers? I followed that blog and your life blog for a while before uh, before Blog Critics was even launched. Well, like I said, we will talk with Marty Thau, uh in the second half of the show. But first, let's uh, check in with a few members of the BC Radio Network. We've had. Uh, two new shows launched this week already. Just two days ago, Matt Sussman launched Treehouse Fort, a weekly sports roundup that airs uh, Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern. I listened to this Monday's show, and I have to say, I was impressed, Matt. I didn't think you had it in you. Is that sarcastic? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I really all, wasn't Always the kind suppose, word for, for good old I, I suppose <laughs> I didn't think you had it in you might have been sarcastic. But the, oh, the you, real. You, and, you and me both on that one. But, no, I was really impressed with the way it turned out. We had a lot of participation. Um, and, just a, I, it, it, like you said, we could, could have gone two hours because we had so much to, to say. You, you had something like, what, five or six people on the line at once plus yourself? We had, Yep, we had five people on the line at once and me. Somehow I was able to corral them all, but, you know, sports fans are men of few words, so we weren't able to go longer than, you know, like two sentences at a time. Did you speak <laughs> in epigrams? Pretty yeah, close, you know, uh, you know, whistles, things like that. So who it was on the like show? Were, didn't seem like you had few words on Monday, but I suppose compared to Eric, uh, you know, yeah, sure. Now, uh, you, uh, you wanted to come on the show specifically. Of course, we wanted to have you on just to talk about uh, how great uh, Treehouse Fort was and how, how great we expect no. it to be going forward. But um, you took a little bit of an issue with uh, the way my wife described your show or the way my wife responded when I described your show. She claims that, a show, that, that nothing can be both a treehouse and a fort, that it is either a fort or a treehouse, but not possibly both. And it was that claim that really put a bee in my bonnet, if you ask me. But uh, and you know, honestly, when I heard that, I didn't know exactly what to say. But fortunately, after a, uh, a series of barbiturates, I was able to devise a reasoning uh, for the show name. But well, you, the name three guys, so we understand it takes a few days for you to kind of think things through. I know it's like, wait a second, I was insulted there. But you see, it's it's, it's a treehouse and a fort because. I don't know if your wife collects those little Russian wooden dowels, but you know you can—they—they're they, layered. So you know, on the outside there's a fort, and then inside of the fort's the treehouse, and then inside of there is us, and we—we we count as one layer because we're all one-dimensional. But it's actually—it's double reinforced. So, like, if someone wants to get in, they have to go through like two little hallways. So, so there's a tree. There's a tree in the courtyard of a walled city, and in that tree is a treehouse. There could be a wall. I haven't looked outside. It's it's scary to to go outside of, of the fort. But it's it's two house. It's it's a smaller house inside of a, a bigger house, which is actually a fort. Gotcha. I hope that makes sense. Not really. Wow, that's convoluted. <laughs> and and I saw a little drawing that you had put together briefly. It, I noticed it since disappeared, um, and it, it didn't have any sort of fort around the treehouse. No. It, well, no. It was it was. Like right on top of each other, like the the fort is like, and the, the walls between the fort and the treehouse are like are like two inches apart. So what you saw was the fort, even though it was shaped like a house because the, the house uh, inside. I thought it was a kind of a Peter Pan thing, you know, where there's a lot of little boys who never grow up, and they're the He-Man Woman Haters Club, and they go in there and and they sit there and they talk about sports, and no girls allowed, and it's not just a treehouse. But it's a fort as well, and it's just a double layer of insulation against the infamy of the world. We we, we are all sort of in a, a, play, a state of arrested development, but girls are allowed. They just make a conscious effort not to go in. Well, I, I think we've actually had at least one volunteer to uh, who's willing to lend feminine wiles to your show. Although she she did offer the caveat that she she just barely keeps track of sports, she just wanted to harass you. Pretty much, and and that would be you know if they do show up, we we know that we're in for a rough time because people of higher intelligence will then be talking and we won't know what to say. <laughs> so, anyways, uh, I want to can, can I tease Monday's show? Absolutely. Oh, awesome. Well, we've already got some guests lined up. Um, we're going to talk with Mike Carollo, who started a website called knickerblogger.net. He's a big New York Knicks fan, 
and he's he's a big uh, statistics guy with basketball, which is something I never really thought of. I usually think of statistics with, with baseball. Uh, this guy has apparently found a way to to measure success through statistics with his uh, beloved New York Knicks, who I don't know if you guys are following, but you know, to call the Knicks a dysfunctional family is kind of an insult to all the dysfunctional families out there. Um, he's not a fan of Isaiah Thomas. He's, I, he's probably not a fan of Stephon Marbury, but um, you know, those those two guys are kind of really hurting the team. At least that's what I think. They're they're like four and eight right now. The season's early, but um, we're going to talk with him, and then some other blog critics uh, are going to talk. Some of the other or other BC sports writers, um, whatever they feel like talking about. Didn't LeBron have something to say about uh, Mr. Marbury? I think. Well, yeah. I don't think he wants to play with them. I think that was one of the questions. Would you want him as a teammate? And I, I believe he said he really wouldn't. Which Marbury, you know, he's he's one of those guys. He's bounced around from team to team, and no matter where he goes, people just don't seem to like him because Marbury, he's got the ability to be selfish, which is what you need to be a star, but he doesn't necessarily have the talent. <laughs> oh, oh. That is that is quite an assessment. I, I, I wonder if he's listening. If so, please call in. Hey, let's give the number, because, of course, we welcome callers at, at any and all time, preferably while we're on the air, though. And yeah, it's absolutely. It's easy to take the call. And the number is 646-595-3196. Call us now. Operators are waiting. <laughs> they have your credit right, well, cards ready. Yeah, thanks very much, Matt. Um, it, like I said, it, I, no, no kidding. It really was exciting and interesting to listen to your show, and uh, I think you did a good job riding herd over that uh, unruly group of commentators. What's the URL, Matt? Uh, BlogTalkRadio.com forward slash Treehouse Fort. All one word. Excellent. Well, that is very exciting, and I myself took a, a brief cursory listen. I will, I will delve in. It's been a, a really busy week thus far. There's all kinds of interesting and, and painful things going on around our house. So, uh, but I, I will certainly get to that, and I've heard nothing but positive reports, and uh, I, I, think, I think that'll end up being really one of our top shows because, you know, let's face it, Sports talk is is one of the radio staples of the nation, and you know you guys may actually know what you're talking about. It, it's not about knowing anything we're saying; it's about the illusion of uh, expertise in the sports. Conviction. That's right. Conviction counts more than fact. Well, I I can certainly relate to that because uh, I'm a man of great conviction, whether I know what I'm talking about or not. And by the way, before I go, Phil, if you need a theme song for next week, I can dig in my closet and try to find one of my old recorders or kazoos, and I could whip up something for you by next Wednesday. Oh, now that's very nice. Absolutely. Well, we got to break out some elliptical music here. I got to get it off. I don't even have any CDs left. It's all the the music's all uh, on my uh, two computers ago, which is now uh, sitting upstairs in 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 the dusty uh, guest bedroom. And I got to get in there and make some new CDs and and bust it out. It's already been five years. I can't believe it. I may be able to hook you up there, EO. I know I've got at least one of your CDs. <laughs> well, I still need to get at the source so I can create new ones. That's true, that's true, the issue. That. I need to move it over to the current computer. It's it's hard to believe it's been that long. All right. Well, are we having? Uh, what else are we doing before we uh, talk to Marty? Well, I just want to remind the listeners that uh, you can listen to BC Radio Live each and every Wednesday night at uh, 9 p.m. Eastern. So drop by the chat room, listen, and call in to talk with us live. As Eric mentioned, the call-in number is area code 646, numbers 595-3195. If you have missed the show, you can catch archives streaming online or subscribe to the podcast to have BC Radio Live delivered to you each week. Uh, You can find out more details about BC Radio Live and all the other shows on the BC Radio Network, including Treehouse Fort and another new addition to our lineup, Geekarati Radio, um, at blogcritics.org slash bcradio. Geekarati is kind of exciting. They've uh, actually been on the air for a while, Christian has, uh, with a couple of friends of his, and Christian is a blog critics writer. Um, So... 
I've talked to him about uh, joining up with us, and he's uh, he's added his show to our lineup. So we're, we're our Monday nights are filling up. Geekarati is on Monday nights just after Treehouse Fort. It's very exciting. I, I'm uh, we've we've said it many times now, and in in uh, in various settings on Alan Levy's show, and when we kicked off last week, and and. Uh, so I, I don't want to belabor the point, but we are very excited about having this opportunity and having the network, and it really is a, a, an excellent multimedia kind of supplement to what we normally do, which is right there uh, on print on your computer screen. And it's really nice to, to be able to stretch out a little bit and to have um, more access, I think, to directly into people's personalities and a lot more spontaneity. Uh, you know, we've we've kind of backed ourselves into a corner with our with our uh online magazine approach and that we are looking for you know very finished polished articles and that's great and we're very proud of that but it is also uh somewhat narrow in terms of uh, forms of and modes of expression so i'm really glad that we have this opportunity it's very exciting and i really hope as many writers as possible uh choose to join in we already have about what at least ten shows lined up, and and I'm certain we're going to end up with uh, with any number of them. But like you say, Philip, the the choice spots, which seem to be kind of prime time evening throughout the week, those do seem to be filling up quite quickly. So now is the time to to stake your place. I know Dawn uh, is uh, was trying to get in touch with you, Philip, just yep. a little bit ago. She's ready to go. She and her partner Kay, and uh, they're going to bring a gloss lip to the air, airwaves, or the web waves, or whatever waves we're on, and I'm personally very excited about that. I think that's going to be a um, rip-snorting and entertaining show as they abuse and make fun of and relay the doings of uh, all the the bastions of entertainment and celebrity. and uh, We've got that one tentatively scheduled for uh, Mondays at about 11 a.m. Eastern, but we've got to work out the final details on that. And then another new show, actually, that just launched tonight, uh, I finished listening to the, the first episode just a few minutes before we went on the air, and that is uh, it's actually the one we talked about last week, The Teenaged World of Maddie Smiley Face. And uh, on the line with us right now should be Chris, Maddie's co-host for the Teenaged World of Maddie's Smiley Face. Chris, are you there? Yeah, hello, Philip. Hey, Chris. I just got a chance to listen to you, too, and uh, excellent first show. Oh, thank you. I hope you enjoyed it. I did indeed. I, I got to hear about everything from AIDS to parenting bubbles to college to bilingual education and school shootings and school violence. Yeah, was, we uh, <laughs> we had it a very, was a uh, packed hour. Yeah, we had a very varied show. You were winding your way through uh, through through the through the mind of of today's teen. It was it was very very interesting and and uh, I, I think it's really great that we have such a different perspective because most of us uh, that are involved are are such uh, old farts. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I hope you found it interesting. Um, it's true. Today's teenagers, um, they have a lot on their plate. They, they're trying to get into college, and at the same time, they're, they're trying to save the world from deadly diseases, and they're trying to uh, promote gay rights. They're doing all sorts of things. Yeah, I don't even have any teens anymore. I, I have two post-teens and two pre-teens. So uh, you guys are filling in my education for me. I, I'm oh. so not looking forward to my kids becoming teens. I got to tell you, listening to your show tonight, Chris, um, it it made me feel old. Well, um, I hope that's not the case. I hope we're trying, we're trying to, uh, you know, reach out to everybody. But um, yeah, the world is changing really fast, and teenagers are trying to keep up with it, you know. And um, well, I'll tell you one thing. I know for a fact that I was not nearly as informed nor as conscious of the world around me as you guys are. I, I'm certainly very impressed by that. When I was when I was in high school, I was absolutely wrapped up in my own sphincter, my own little world of what was going on around me and uh, the band I was in and uh, sports I was playing and what girls I was going out with. And I was really not paying all that much attention to the greater world other than uh, maybe, uh, you know, how my favorite sports teams were doing. And 
and, and that was about it, or, or, or and music, of course. But you guys seem to really um, to be quite aware of what's going on and looking to the future. I, I don't remember having such a vivid sense of of the future as something real and palpable. You know, the teenage years are are supposed to be are are, are notorious for being. People are very wrapped up in the here and now and have a hard time really projecting out into the future. But you guys are, are, are seem very mature in that way, and you know, take take what is coming very seriously. Well, uh, we're glad you see that. Um, well, what our what one of our philosophies is is that we feel that the the world is going to be ours. We're going to inherit it. Um, and that we need to start getting involved now because, you know, when are we going to start changing? You know, when are we going to start making a difference? Which well, is... Uh, uh, yeah, which we've got someone in the chat room suggesting that the teen years is uh, are, are really all all about drugs. So I, I think that, that you're... Oh, I left that off. <laughs> it might be a little better than that one. <laughs> well, thank Shoot, you I forgot me. to mention that in my... List of teen concerns from from my teen years. Yeah, well, thanks for calling in, Chris. Um, you guys can all all listeners can check out the teenage world of Maddie Smiley Face with Maddie and her friend Chris hosting every Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern. Though they're actually broadcasting from California, so that's uh, 5 p.m. California time. Uh, including earlier tonight, the uh, archive should be available on the web, and uh, next Wednesday as well. You can call in and chat with them at the same time. And what's their Let's URL? Uh, they are at uh, blogtalkradio.com slash teenaged underscore world underscore Maddie, M-A-D-D-Y. But you can uh, get a link to that and find out more details at blogcritics.org slash bcradio. Let us take a quick break, and then we'll come right back and talk with Marty Thal. <laughs> Welcome back to BC Radio Live. I'm Philip Wynn, Chief Geek, and I'm here with Eric Olson, founder and publisher of BC Magazine. And we have on the line with us Marty Thau, a legendary, I repeat, legendary producer. Good to have you on the show, Marty. Oh, thanks, Eric. How are you? Well, I'm fine. That was Philip, but uh, we're both fine. Right. Nonetheless, right. how are you? Uh, I'm pretty good for an old fart. Yeah, you're even older than I am. That's amazing. I am. I, I think I'm probably the oldest man in uh, punk music. You are the it's oldest man in showbiz. Yeah, maybe in showbiz too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're the you're the youngest old man in showbiz. Well, thank you. As far thank as I'm you. concerned, you you are ever youthful, and that is one of your greatest traits. I would say you, you definitely just seem to have a an evergreen interest in what's going on, and and. Uh, uh, you know, as I was saying just just a minute ago about about the teens, uh, you know, I heard you, some of that. Yeah, you you seem to um, you know always be kind of in the here and now, uh, even though you have such a uh, amazing and varied and interesting history. And speaking of that history, you are now working on your memoirs. Is that true? Uh, that's correct. That's right. I've been actually working on it for about two years now. Wow. It's a it's a very painful process because you reflect back on your life and you realize lots of mistakes you might have made and lots of regrets you have and um, but on the other hand it clears up um, certain things you might have ever been confused about and you get a greater clarity and you settle issues with yourself. That's very interesting. So in a sense you're having a dialogue with yourself as you go. Absolutely correct. How far into it are you now? Are you, is it chronological? Or are you jumping around? How are, how are you actually going about the writing process? Um, well, I started um, giving you know my background history, where I was from, and where I went to school, and how I led into how I got into the music business, and then um, the, it, all that led up to um, the Dolls, the complete New York Dolls story, and then eventually into the Red Star Records uh, formation and the different artists that I was working with. And at this point, I'm up to probably the last, um, one of the last sections about the artists, which is about Richard Hell. 
so uh, the the main um, meat of the story is, I guess, from 1970, about from 1975 to 1982. Then, then I, you know, I'll briefly gloss over all that. Um, took place afterwards leading up to today and um uh, but I think if anybody is interested in anything that I have to say it's probably about those years from 75 to 82 Well it is a fascinating period that's for sure why don't you tell us you know let's go back to the beginning how did you get into the music business in the first place give us a little bit about your background and and let's just uh, run through the story cuz uh, it, it is certainly fascinating Okay. Um, well, I was born and raised in, in New York City, in the Bronx. Um, went to uh, NYU, New York University, um, then went into the Army, and then uh, upon my re- uh, discharge, uh, answered an ad in the New York Times classified section for a, um, a trainee with a trade publication. And not knowing what the trade publication was, I, it sounded interesting, a trade publication. I had studied communication arts and didn't really know exactly where I was going to go with it, but I answered that ad, and before I knew it, I was interviewing with Billboard magazine, the, the music bible of uh, the music industry. And um, I stayed there for about a year. I made contacts with lots of different people in the business and sort of got a feeling for it. And the, my job was not all that challenging, but at one point I felt, well, I'm Eventually, I'm going to be recruited because they're always looking for young, new faces with some sort of passion for music and inspired amateurs, I guess you could call us. So, um, and that happened. I was hired by, uh, recruited by Neil Bogart, the late Neil Bogart, who, in his own right, is a an important, legendary, and major figure in the history of the music business. Um, uh, he was my counterpart when I worked at Billboard. He was at Cashbox Magazine as my counterpart. He remembered me, and he, I was um, kind of like floating around the downtown Brill building, that whole Broadway scene of the uh, earlyish uh, 60s, like from 63 to 65. I, that was when I was uh, first in the business. And he remembered me, and he asked me if I'd like to be the uh, rock promotion manager for Cameo Parkway Records. He had gone from Cashbox to MGM Records, and he became a real promotion whiz, and he had promoted Frank Zappa and the Eleven Spoonful and Herman's Hermits and what have you. And uh, he he jumped upon, seized upon the opportunity to become uh, the general manager of the uh, newly formed Cameo Parkway Records, which had been in limbo for a couple of years because its owner, who had all those big hits in the late 50s and early 60s of Cameo, had had a nervous breakdown and by 66 or late 65, a Texas uh, syndicate of businessmen purchased the um, Cameo Parkway company in limbo, and um, uh, Bogart became its uh, general manager in its New York office. They were from based in Philadelphia. Well, anyway, in the course of that first year that I spent with Neil at Cameo 66, we placed uh, 28 records on the charts, and the record industry really took notice, and we were hot, and we were on the front cover of Cashbox magazine, and we were really pretty cool, young, brashy, arrogant, charming young guys. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, let's see what We had uh, one of our most noteworthy hits was Question Mark and the Mysterians, 96 Tears, and we had early Bob Seger records and Donnie Hathaway and just a whole bunch of people, the five stair steps. Okay, so then um, we shift over to, in 67, early 67, we all shifted over to Buddha Records, the newly formed Buddha, the team of Neil Bogart, myself, and Cecil Holmes. And um, Buddha um, was formed by this uh, three hip young guys from Brooklyn, Artie Ripp, Phil Steinberg, and Jaime Rahi who had this Kama Sutra deal with MGM for their star attraction, Love and Spoonful. And uh, they were looking for someone, they were looking for a loophole in their contract with MGM because Kama Sutra, they felt, was not being paid properly by MGM. And they found that loophole and they formed Buddha Records and we came over from Cameo. We left Cameo because Alan Klein, who was the manager of the Beatles, was rumored to be buying... A cameo because of its American stock exchange listing. 
Uh, well, the one that was that was a rumor that never happened, but we left because Klein was very indifferent to what you know. When we asked him what what's going to happen with us here, we're we're hot. We want to keep going. He says, "Don't worry, you get paid every week, so don't worry about it." The one that was, we went to Buddha, and within the first three months, we had our first hit with Green Tambourine, a group from your area, actually Cincinnati, I believe. Really? Yep. Uh, we had Green Tambourine was our first hit. Psychedelic. Then we had, well, they actually were more psychedelic than they got credit for. Because they were with Buddha and we were having all these other bubblegum hits, they were perceived as being a bubblegum group, but in reality they weren't. No, they had a sitar. I remember the song very well. I, I, it was one of the first singles I bought. Yeah, that was a great record. Well, that, we followed that up with Simon Says and Yummy, 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 and the 1910 Fruit Gum Company had a whole bunch of hits. And Indian uh, Giver, a classic. And one, two, three, red light. That was, I love, but Indian Giver with that. That was one of the first singles I got as well. That was a great record. We were very big in Cleveland. Well, uh, I was in L.A. at the time, but that's okay. Well, yeah, in Cleveland, uh, Wixie Radio, W-I-X-Y, they were playing. And even KYC, KYC played some of our records. Is KYC still in business? Uh it is, but under a different name. And I'm trying to think what it changed to. That's still the call letters of the. Uh, there's still a television station, though, WKYC. So anyway, um, so the years passed, and by this time it's uh, into 1970. Well, you know, I remember. Excuse me, I, I don't. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, I remember when we've talked before. Um, tell us a little bit about I, I mean I think it was really interesting kind of how you did your job you were you were basically in promotions right yeah and I mean that's kind of a different world um, and, and so I mean tell us a little bit about you know your day-to-day -day activity what did you actually do in the course of well, that job how, how were you successful how, how were you able to make these hits well I think promotion is is uh, at that point it was mainly a matter of uh, personality and your credibility if if you um, if you uh, uh, un foolishly hype something and it goes absolutely nowhere, your credibility is shaken. And the next time around, when you bring something in, they're going to look at you and wonder whether they should play it or not. So um, you can't really you can't hype something, you can't promote something that if if it's not in the grooves and you know it. That it's in the if you know it's in the grooves, uh, you know you can go all out and say I put my stamp of approval on this and you should play it and you get the results that you want. Uh, so I used to speak with um, dozens of people each day all around the country, and I would start promoting a record, let's say in the tertiary markets in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and. Um, Athens, Georgia, and uh, Orlando, Florida, small places like that, and I'd look for a reaction. And if I would see a reaction by being in constant touch with these first group of stations that were playing a record, and they were telling me, hey, this record is starting to get great listener response, our phone lines you know, ring off the hook every time we play it, then I would know that I had something that proves itself once being aired. And then I'd go to a, you know, a larger level, a uh, larger city, a larger radio station with greater wattage, and eventually just build it all around the country like that. And at that time, you had people like uh, Bill, the Bill Gavin Report, which was a very important newsletter. When he put his stamp of approval on a record, almost all the radio stations in the country would, would pay notice to it and usually play it. And Cal Rudman's Friday Morning Quarterback was a popular newsletter as well. And so we had good contacts with all these people, and I did a lot of traveling. Actually, um, for the first year at Buddha, I, every week at least, there was somewhere that I would go. I would go to work on, let's say, on a Tuesday morning, and by 7 o'clock at night, I'd be out at LaGuardia Airport on a plane to Miami, and by 9 o'clock I'd be in a restaurant somewhere waiting to have dinner with a music director or a program director, and then I'd sleep in a hotel, and by early morning I was back at my desk at 10 o'clock in the morning. It was it was that fast and frantic. A, a young man's occupation. Absolutely. <clears throat> well, that's what happened. After three and a half, four years of that, I just felt... Hey, how long can a promotion man go running like that? 
until, you know, before fresher new faces emerge, you know, with a greater vitality and energy. And, and so, I, and as well, not to downgrade the quality of the music that we were putting out, but it wasn't music that I personally was listening to. I mean, I wasn't about to go into a store to buy Yummy, Yummy, Yummy or Indian Giver as much as I liked the hypnosis and youth of those songs. They were not for an audience, you know, of my age. They weren't entertaining to me. They were just good records that I knew would be hit records but and would do the company, you know, business, but it was not my... Uh, they did not speak taste. to your soul? Pardon me? They did not speak to your soul? No, they didn't. They didn't. <laughs> I was listening to, you know, Rolling Stones and Santana and, I mean, you all the, um, the, the bigger psychedelic, you know, popular uh, groups, the Who, uh, of that day. Th- those were the ones that I was interested in. So, I, and also the country was in the midst of a, a cultural revolution and I just didn't relate to to what I was promoting, and I felt I want to be part of that too because that, that's what interests me. So I split from Buddha, and I went to a company called Inherit Productions as one of three partners. <coughs> and at Inherit, we had um, my my partner had released um, uh, Van Morrison's Astral Weeks album and his Moon Dance albums, those two albums, and uh, probably were, still his most popular. Pardon me? Probably still his most popular. Yeah, yeah, yeah great records. And um, I think, you know, he's, he, he's made some good records after that, but I think he really works almost on the strength of Moondance to this day, although he's historic. I mean, you can't fault Van Morrison in any way, but uh, I don't think he ever equaled those those first two, well, as good as the rest of them might have been. Uh, and then we also released a uh, couple of records on a group called the Glass Harp from from Cleveland. Yeah, I know them well. Right, Glass Harp had a big hit in Cleveland. That first record, I think they sold sixty thousand copies in Cleveland alone, which was a lot at that moment. That is astonishing. Um, and we did uh, an artist by the name of Turley Richards, and we did an, an album by. Dorothy Morrison, who had been the lead singer of the Oh Happy Day hit song, um, and, and some others too. But in those days, um, producers weren't making the kind of money that uh, they are today. I mean, today a producer could make in six figures a production fee. We were making five to ten thousand dollars per project, and each one would take a couple of months to do. And then by the time we got paid and divided it three ways, and having I had a house out in the country and three kids and cars and insurance and braces and you name it. Uh, it just, I just couldn't afford to do it. And I was offered a job uh, to be the head of A&R at Paramount Records. And I jumped at it and took it. And my wife was very happy because this was the first time, you know, in our married life that I'd be home more often than not. Um, and I, I stayed there for a short period of time only to discover that they were really a mess that they were basically the soundtrack releasing arm of Paramount Pictures, the Woody Allen Pictures. I mean, they did have the Godfather albums, which was good, but really they were more interested in the Brady Bunch than any new rock and roll that would come down the pike, and they didn't want to hear it. And after a short period of time, I resigned and found the New York Dolls. This brings us up to, I would say, June 72. That's where we are at this point. Any that was questions? quite a radical shift, man. Well, I, I from don't the know. Brady I mean, Bunch I, to the Dolls. Yeah, but uh, that's why I left. I wasn't in, interested in the Brady Bunch or anything like what they were releasing as soundtracks from the, their films. So um, then I found the Dolls, you know, quite by accident. I remember that um, a friend of mine who at the time was 19 years old. He was in the publicity department at Paramount Records, said to me uh, one day while I was at Paramount, he said, the best New York group downtown that's unsigned is a group called the New York Dolls. So I sort of like put that in my head, and I didn't think much of it. And when I left, and the night I was actually celebrating my departure with my wife from resigning from Paramount, we, after we, we had dinner, we were walking around the village, and 
came across this place called the Mercer Arts Center, and the marquee outside read, New York Dolls, two shows, $3. So I said, hmm, I remember Dan, the, the friend that I'm talking about was Danny Goldberg, who became a major figure. Eventually he was the president of uh, Warner Brothers and Atlantic Records. Oh, yeah, of course. And um, I said, I remember that this uh, young fellow mentioned to me about this band. Let's go in and see them. So we went in. We saw them, and we were really, you know, mind-blown. And then at the end of the show, we were walking out, and I said to my wife, Betty, I said, look, this is, was either the best group I've ever seen or the worst group I've ever seen. I said, let's, let's stay and talk to them, <clears throat> which I did do, and I was really intrigued, you know, by them. They were really amusing and witty and outrageous and just fearless young guys and they were really cool I thought now in that same period of time um, I had been approached by Morris Levy's office Morris Levy was sort of like known as the godfather of the music business and rumored to be the mob connection to the music industry he was the godfather and he he liked me and he knew of me and he said he told me, what would you like to do? And I said, well, I'd like to, I think I'd like to form a label and release some singles, a singles label. He said, okay, I'll, I'll finance it. I said, okay, great. And, you know, let me think about it a little bit further and let me see if I could line up, you know, those artists that I want to record. So um, after seeing them that night, the Dolls, I thought, gee, well, maybe these are the guys. They have great material looking for a kiss and personality crisis and Jet Boy and a whole bunch of other songs that I thought all could be possible singles. And then I met them two weeks later just, you know, to discuss what any possible connection could be between us and concluded these guys have a lot more to offer than just doing a single or two here or there. I should manage these guys and, and uh, take it from there and try to make them into a big group. So I... I uh, dropped the idea of the singles label and took them on as a management, as their manager. And then I brought in um, Steve Lieber and David Krebs, who were two booking agents at the William Morris Agency who had left William Morris to form their own management company, uh, who, who had said to me when I was at Paramount, gee, if you ever want to do anything with us, if the, if the occasion arises, uh, give us a call. We'd, we'd love to do work with you on something. I remembered that, called them, took them down to see the dolls at the Merceron Center, and they became my co-managers with the band. And They would take care of the administration and the booking and the accounting and all of that. I would, take, I would strategize the dolls' career and be their personal manager and their spokesman for the industry. So, uh, okay, now we're into trying to get a deal for the dolls um, which was tough because uh, we I took the dolls to England because we quickly found out after trying to get them a deal in America that America American companies were far too conservative and this group was just a little bit too flamboyant and too insane for American record company executives to understand and, and consider working with they were actually frightened of them. They, they didn't even want to be in the same room with them if they could help it. Um, we, so we, Steve and I, Steve Lieber and I, decided we'll take them to England because the British kids and crowd will realize that this is the best, one of the best unsigned bands in the world, <coughs> which at that time they were. We went to England, uh, and they opened for Rod Stewart at um, Wembley Auditorium in front of 13,000 people never having played for more than 350 people ever. Uh, it was quite a shock, and you know they went over um, well for those who could see them and appreciate them and understand what they were trying to do and who they were. All the rest was sort of bewildered and dumbfounded, like a lot of American kids were the first time they, they saw the dolls. Um, in the course of that a week that we were scheduled to stay there and meet with different record executives to discuss making a record deal, Billy Mercia, the drummer of the group, went to a party uh, with some people that he didn't know and took a combination of um, what was called Mandy's, Mandrakes, which was a German, the German equivalent of Quaaludes, 
and drank champagne and did something with morphine as well. It was, you know, all drug-induced and alcohol-induced and passed out. Everybody panicked at that party. Most of them left the party, and uh, the people that remained put him into an ice-cold bath and tried to pour coffee down his throat, and he choked on his own vomit. Yeah. The Hendrix Hendrix syndrome. Right. Um, Scotland Yard got into the picture. I sent the dolls back to New York on the very next plane the same morning, knowing that if this thing, you know, will be held over for a month with all kinds of questions and depositions or whatever, and I wanted to get them out of there and spare them, the dolls, and the Mercia family, Bill and Mercia's family, any further anguish. Um, came back to New York. Um, at that point, the dolls were a dead issue with whatever record companies you know existed because who they didn't even who would sign a group that they didn't even know would exist. Um, a month later, the dolls decided, okay, let's continue. We'll cast a new drama. And we'll continue. And Jerry Nolan, they held auditions. And Jerry Nolan, who was a real great drummer, an army brat who was playing around the city in different bands, but really hadn't found the band that he wanted to, you know, devote his life to. And they they brought him in. He became the drummer. And um, they practiced. And then by December, they played their first show, the newly reconstituted Dolls at the Mercer Art Center. And Something like about 450 people packed into a 287-seat theater, all the record executives in town. Because, you know, when someone dies in a group, all of a sudden they become more popular than before. Um, And uh, months pass, we booked them up and down, you know, New York and the Burbs and Queens and Brooklyn, Long Island and uptown and downtown and, you know, just trying to fuel the fire. And uh, finally, Mercury Records agreed to sign them. Uh, thanks to the efforts of the late Paul Nelson, who was, uh, had been a very noted rock critic at Rolling Stone, um, who unfortunately passed away about a year ago. Um, okay, then they put out their first record, and they toured around the country. The first record only sold 100,000 copies, which I thought, geez, that's not bad at all for a brand new group and you know mercury called me and said you know what is it with you we thought we were going to have like a million seller this first time around or at least gold 500,000 copies and i said look how many other artists on your how many other new artists on your roster have done as well on their first release and they they couldn't answer that you know because none of them had um then we continued, um, you know, just promoting them, and then we went in. We did a second record with Shadow Morton was producing. He of um, Shangri-La's fame. Todd Rundgren did the first one, right? Uh, Todd Rundgren did the first one, right. Uh, he did a good job, but he was a little bit indifferent in terms of his communicating with the band, and it kind of rubbed them all the wrong way. He was a little bit uh, egocentric and uh, insensitive to their their requests for how they would like this or that. And he said, oh, that's my drum sound. Forget about it. Don't bother me t- telling me that you want a different drum sound. Um, anyway, but he did make a fine record. I, I must you know, applaud him for that, but a difficult person to work with. Uh, anyway, um, the second record came time to do. Shadow Morton came in. Uh, he produced a record, but then the backlash started because... That's quite often the way it is with the press. They build you up and then they rip you down. And if you still manage to be breathing, they'll um, give you another shot. They'll give you another look. And they went out and Dawes went out in the country and they were uh, touring. The, there was a show that was the Dawes headlining, um, Aerosmith as a special attraction, and Kiss as the opener. That's quite a tour, I think. Uh, anyway, they, they would draw 5,000 one night and 200 people the next night. Um, it, was, it was totally unpredictable. Um, let's see, I would say at that point we're into 1974. Marty, I'm, uh, unbel- these things always go so quickly. I could sit here and listen for another couple hours. And I think the first time we talk, we probably talk three or four hours. Um, we, we have to try to compress the rest of your 
Okay. Wondrous career into 12 minutes. So maybe okay. we maybe wrap up the dolls and then get uh, into Red Star because of course that's okay. something you're you're rightly very proud of and it's you know absolute cornerstone of of uh, rock music history. Thank you. Okay, I can do that. Uh, well, the the wind up of the dolls was uh, at one point I just finally said to them, look, you're mixing drugs and drink uh, with your career, and they don't they're not compatible. One or the other. Do you want to be famous? You want to be rich? You want to be rock and roll legends? You have to cut that out. Get rid of your personal demons. Write new material and uh, make a new make new records and and work at it. And if you don't do that, I'm history with you. I'm leaving. It never happened, and I left. I then met uh, someone that I hadn't seen in a long time, Richard Goddard. We formed a company called Instant Records, which was a production company. Well, right before that, after I split with the Dolls, I did some demos with the Ramones. I recorded um, a couple of tracks that ended up being one of the main reasons why they got their deal with Sire Records. Then I met Richard Goddard. You were the first person to record the Ramones, weren't you? Yeah. That's, I think they that's made pretty some demos. I think they did some demos before me, but uh, they were not as well done. And um, I only do two tracks of them. I want to be your boyfriend and... Um, Judy is a punk. In fact, it's on one of their anthologies that's been reissued by uh, Rhino. Um, okay, then I formed um, with Richard Goddard, Instant Records Production Company. He and I were partners. We signed Blondie. We did their first album um, with, on private stock records. And that Ex-Offenders single it was the single out of that. Uh, we signed Robert Gordon. And we signed Richard Hell. Uh, but then I left, you know, before those records could come out because I was offered my own record deal with by these two um, record promoters, Marvin Schlachter and Stanley Hoffman, uh, and, and formed Red Star Records. They financed it. And the first group that I signed was Suicide, <coughs> who were very poorly regarded in the city, but I saw in them a certain futurism that I thought, um, we should begin you know, getting on tape because this is what the future is going to be about, electronics and um, synthesizers. And that first record proved to be um, a classic, and uh, there were volumes of it written about in Europe mainly. In America, everybody scratched their heads and said, uh, "Who? what is this all about? There's no guitars in this group, so how good could they be? If, if for people who don't know, they're they're a duo. They were a duo, oh, right? A singer and a and a uh, and a uh, keyboard player. Well, at at that time, they were perceived as being an electronic uh, music entity, but actually, the music was uh, played on a farfisa organ and a rhythm machine, and uh, that was all um, treated then in the controls by Craig Leon and myself and uh, sounded the way it did sound as an electronic-sounding record. Eventually, they did acquire a synthesizer and did truly become an electronic group. Um, then I did, recorded The Real Kids out of Boston, uh, made an album with them that's highly regarded as well, and um, I, I did a compilation called Two by Five with the Flesh Tones, and I also did an album with the Flesh Tones, and I did uh, Brian Setz's first group called the Bloodless Pharaohs. Before these were pre-Stray Cats, and uh, a solo album with uh, Martin Rev called Clouds of Glory that will be, by the way, reissued in the next couple of months. Yeah, it's a great record. And, and Martin is the was is the is or was the keyboardist of Suicide. Right. Um, okay. So. Um, uh, anyway, and then I lost my financing because my partners who were underwriting the company were disco people. Um, they thought I had my finger on the pulse of something that was happening, which I did do, but they didn't understand it, and eventually that proved to be uh, the reason why they terminated financing Red Star. Uh, and their, their claim to fame was Push Push in the Bush by <laughs> Musique, which was a big hit in the disco world, but oh, of course. so far removed from me and, uh, and what I was doing. Um, Let's see where are we? I think at that point, um, uh, the next I did a two by five compilation, and then I recorded Richard Hell, and then at that point I just concluded, well, 
the punk era is dead and over, and all I'm really going to be at this point is a reissuing company of the things that I had done. And um, that's that's where my record manufacturing time ended, although by 1996, then I struck up a deal with Caroline Distributors and reissued the whole line of stuff once again. And um, since then, I've I moved out of New York City. I now live in Virginia. I'm writing my memoir. I wrote a screenplay. I'm a grandfather, and um, I lead a very casual life, and I'm pretty happy. What, what in your mind is, uh, I, I guess it's two separate questions, what's your favorite you know, music, uh, even, even so narrow as a song but, you know, or, or, or a moment? What's your favorite musical moment you've been involved with, and what do you think is the most important that you've been involved with? I think the Suicide album. I think um, that was the most uh, ahead of its time and uh, stands up as well as it does in, in time. In fact, recently they were suicide in two, in, here in the year 2007 were awarded Mojo Magazine's Innovation and in Sound Award. That was fairly recently. So I, I would think that, that that takes you know the cake as far as that's concerned. And uh, that that has been reissued, I guess, more than once. But is it available right now? The yeah, oh yeah, the album. It's out now through a company called Blast First, which is part of Mute Records in England. In fact, they just released a six CD box set of Suicide's live performances from CBGBs and different places around the world, Berlin and Paris, and uh, those shows and were crazy too, weren't they? Yeah. Very confrontational. They were great. They were great. They were they were packed and they were insane, and Alan was totally confrontational. And you know he would, in Paris he would berate the French for the quality of their whores, <laughs> and in Germany he would berate the Germans for their Nazi tendencies, and uh, and Holocaust. <laughs> he was it was pretty wild. He would wear a motorcycle chain around his neck and and cut himself with a with a razor on his chest ever so lightly so that it would look a lot worse than it actually was. But blood would appear. Blood being very symbolic. Well, he's an artist, right? Alan he, is, is a, he is. He's a multimedia he's a, artist. He's a ne- neon sculptorist. Interesting. Sculptor. Well, and Marty, this is, this is Philip again. Uh, I, this is my first time hearing most of these stories, and I've got to say uh, you, you've definitely led an interesting life. I can see uh, why Eric is so pleased to count you as a friend. And uh, your book, The Red Star Chronicles, is to be published in June of next year. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I think you should. Uh, we should point that out that uh, it's not available at the moment. It's not complete yet, but it will be out in June, late June in, uh, in 2008, through a company called Sympathetic Press. They're, they're the book division of, of the Sympathy for the Record Industry record label. Speaking of the, it brings back to something we were talking about at the very beginning. In this process of of writing the book and thinking and memory and working through things, what what has uh, most uh, startled you? You know, what what do you view differently, or what revelation have you uh, come to as a result of of your work on this? Well, that um, most of the people that I met at the major companies in the record industry were a bunch of assholes. That's what I conclude that they had no idea what I was speaking about, and most of the things that I uh, tried to point out and illustrate and suggest and and predict turned out to be true. I'm not patting myself on the back, you know, foolishly, but um, they really, they were very disconnected. Music to them was a record number and a quantity to manufacture. They they didn't relate to the music, had no feeling for the music, didn't relate to the audience. And that held true for so many years to so the point where we are right now, where the record industry is in the current state of confusion that it's in. Well, thank you for your insight, Marty. Uh, it has truly been a pleasure having you on, and uh, I suspect that we'll want to have you back on the show when your book is actually released in June. Sure, again, absolutely. Again, everybody, that'll be The Red Star Chronicles by Marty Thau to be published in June 2008 by Sympathetic Press. Okay, thank uh, you. Thank you very much. 
Now, uh, this has been BC Radio Live. We are here each and every Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. So drop by the chat room, listen, and call in to talk with us live. If you've missed the show, you can catch archives streaming online or subscribe to the podcast to have BC Radio Live delivered to you each week. You can find out more details uh, at blogcritics.org slash bcradio. Aloha. Aloha.